put, I have to put on my deer antlers. No worries. Any questions or comments so far? Great. So we have mic runners somewhere. Where's Paul? Is still at lunch? Do we have another Testing mic runner? Up. I can run the mic. You want to hand me the mic? Bring it up. Yeah, you do it. The mic's in the back. Can you see that microphone right there? Great. Thank you. And here's the gentleman right here. Okay, but I'm a mic runner, but I also had a question, so I've got the mic. All right, so he's first and you're second. Okay, okay. okay. All right. So this, this, you started out today talking about the difference between uh, jackrabbits and turtles. Uh-huh. Okay, so, um, so I'm a highly extroverted person. And one time, I was talk, one time I was talking to Yvonne Ran, who, for you who don't know, is a really prominent Buddhist teacher who was at um, Green Gulch Ranch. Okay, so I was talking to her and I said, you know, when I walk through Green Gulch, there are all these people walking around with their heads down. They won't even look at you. She says, that's because it's a Zen Buddhist center and, and, and it really appeals to introverts. They don't like talking to anybody. So for people like me to come here and do, sit in silence all day, or, one, or worse yet, for a whole week, is really, really hard. <laughs> no, I got and it. The, the answer you. to that is yes. <laughs> I, I, don't hear, I don't hear that there's any acknowledgement of that, or mm. what do we do about these people? You know, we're here to serve everybody, but I don't hear us acknowledging people like myself. Oh. I think that's a very real point. Very real yes. point. And um, it goes to diversity. Many important kinds of diversity, including temperamental diversity or introversion, extroversion kind of diversity. Uh, and uh, I was on the board at Spirit Rock for uh, nine years, and we have term limits here, so I termed off. That was some time ago. And it was an ongoing conversation how to really include all three jewels traditionally of practice the teacher the teaching and the community of the taught and the third jewel uh, is very present in the culture in asia but arguably as buddhism came into the west it just brought the first two of those jewels the teachings and the respect for the teachers and the possibility of awakening and the distant cousin was community not that brought along so uh, it's a very important issue uh, there is a place, of course, for making it comfortable for people who want to be completely internal and don't want to be um, uh, engaged with interacting, including some of the sometimes scripted automaticities that go with that. They want to have room to just be in their own zone. On the other hand, it's really important for this institution, which I'm still very loyal to and involved with, as well as other institutions, to find ways to support the practice of everyone, including people who are really uh, engaged interpersonally and really fed by that um, support and for whom relationships are a very important field of practice. It's really important. So I just want to say that. Um, in this particular workshop, we won't do paired things. I will say, if you're interested, um, I'll teach a workshop here in a few months called the Neurodharma of Love. And definitely, there will be interactive uh, possibilities there. And I think the larger point is, for me, respect who we are. That's a key point Rick was bringing up repeatedly. We all have a kind of nature, our home base, if we are, who we are. Uh, and in that context, uh, advocate for oneself to get what we need. 
I think a lot of traditional contemplative practice was uh, led by people who were turtles, taught by turtles in turtle pens to train other people to be better turtles. And there's a place for that, okay? Uh, but I think, what about the rest of us, especially in a jackrabbity culture? And one nice thing that's useful about this understanding of the brain is it helps us individualize practice and not take it so personally. And it helps us realize that, well, I am a kind of person who needs more stimulation from my objects of attention if I'm going to stay steady on them, right? Or I'm a kind of person who really needs to interact with more people. Otherwise, it's, use my metaphor earlier, like breathing through a straw. I can kind of survive, but it's not enough. I'm not getting enough of those social supplies. Yeah. And to, as I said earlier, you know, be on your own side about that. So that's my hunch about that. You know, Anand, Ananda, asked the Bu- Ananda asked the Buddha about you know being with uh, uh, being with. I'm going to massacre the quote. I'm sorry. Uh, being with people who are in the holy life, and you know, was the holy life being in the sangha? Was the holy life with the teachings and the teacher? And the Buddha's response, interestingly, was be- being in sangha is the whole of the holy life. All right, good, thank you. I wanted to ask you about the chakras, which has not been mentioned yet. And um, I have found that um, I can do all kinds of things with my head and my mind, but if some of my chakras are out of balance, they are the ones that are in control. Okay. From stuff that happened. So I'm curious. Um. I think chakras are a way that Eastern, that the Eastern meditative and, and uh, tradition has talked about uh, exactly those kinds of experiences. Uh, the Western tradition has, you know, of, of philosophy and religion has usually done the top-down kind of p- approach. To go back to some of what Rick originally said about the, you know, when you're trying to set an intention, you're using a prefrontal cortex. Western philosophical and religious and even the medical traditions have all been top-down. Uh, a lot of the Eastern traditions have tried to find ways to express bottom-up kinds of events. If you look at the chakras, and I'm not a chakra expert, so I'm gonna, you're going you're gonna to get the grade school understanding that I have. Um, if you look at where the chakras are located, they are largely located in areas of very dense autonomic nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic uh, kinds of areas. The heart chakra, for example, uh, there's a celiac uh, plexus of autonomic nerves, so that's right where the, the chakra is. You know, they, they, they fit fairly well to some of the locations of the autonomic nervous system. When something comes from the autonomic nervous system, or comes from the base up, like the vertigo experience that was talked about this morning, um, it comes up without a cortical understanding of what the hell is going on. And so there's an attempt to represent it as this experience or that. Um, I think doing, and so that leads, sort of leads to the other side of this, which is doing chakra work when you are, say, doing breath work where you're breathing through the heart chakra to try to deal with uh, some emotional uh, issue or deal with the, the, I forget the name of the stomach chakra, uh, to deal with uh, essentially empowerment or energizing. In my view, um, what you're dealing with 
is a way of getting to the cortical representation of these various collections of autonomic nervous systems, uh, plexi, all the way down. Um, and as a, as a way to find out, essentially, what's happening internally. So if you find that you're overwhelmed by some chakra activity, and that working with chakras with the, somebody who really understands it helps you, I would, I would slot that in skillful means. Another little, tiny, another little sidebar piece on this is that if you look at the autonomic nervous system, uh, we think of the autonomic nervous system as directive. And it's actually not. The vagus nerve, which is the nerve that when you, you vasovagal out, your heart rate slows and you faint. The vagus nerve is 70% sensory. It's not, it's, not, it's not telling your heart what to do. It's trying to find out what is going on. And so, and that goes up into the brainstem and into the, the thalamus and into the insular cortex, which you talked a little bit about earlier. And that's kind of a, a way in which your gut sense arises. And the brain, the brain is sitting here inside this you know, calcium box trying to make sense of the incoming sensory experiences in order to try to deal. So that, that's my second grade understanding of chakras. Thank you. Maybe one or two more people right there. Great. If you keep your hand up, she'll find you. Thank you for helping. So um, I work with children in the child welfare system, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about using meditation techniques to help heal trauma in with children and youth that have had extensive long-term trauma. Well, thank you for that. I'll repeat it, make sure I understand. You work with children, including children who've been traumatized, and uh, any you're asking for any thoughts or suggestions about maybe meditation for children in general, especially oriented, or more broadly, maybe mindfulness methods in general for, for kids, mm-hmm. especially for trauma? Yes? No? Right, right, given that it might be difficult for them yeah. in that state. Well, immediately my heart's touched by just imagining, you know, people, kids, what they've gone through. Um, I'd say first that there are people who are really expert at working with mindfulness methods with young children. And uh, while I have a very strong background as a child therapist and, and also zero to three developmental psychology stuff, I'm not a specialist in this area. So I'll just call out a couple of names that... Uh, are people I know well, and there are others too, so I'm not trying to exclude anyone. Michelle Liliana, who with James Barras has co-authored a book, Awakening Joy, right, for children and families. So Michelle Liliana, and on my website and other places, uh, a lot of her very neat methods that are applied to young children, uh, including in secular settings, so they kind of slide right in in the public school system, and you know, uh, <laughs> she's got really great resources. And if we include children to uh, extend into adolescence, Gina Beagle, a friend of mine, B I E G E L, has done a lot about um, mindfulness and also meditation for adolescents, and has created books and handbooks and uh, resources about it. So these are high quality resources. My own. Uh, personal reflection is really in two parts. And then I bet there are other people in the room who might come find you later and 
would enjoy talking with you too. Uh, first, if you think about the nature of trauma, <clears throat> it's an assault on what the great British child psychiatrist Daniel Winnicott talked about, the utter importance of the experience of going on being, including the going on being of a predictable, reliable, safe enough, good enough world and good enough caregiving. So it's a violation of going on being. So I think one of the most useful things for young children and anyone who's had painful, difficult, even traumatic experiences is to track when it's true, which is almost always the case, that there is going on being and there is good enough going on being and there is good enough going on being of so many good things in life. And also terrible things are happening. And also over here, there is going on being. So just the registration for a child, we don't even need to call it meditation. Still breathing. Still here. Still growing. Still developing. Still opportunities arriving. Still possibilities emerging. Still chocolate. Still cat petting. Still Disney movie. For the fourth time, the same Disney movie. Going on being. You know? That's, that's so primal. And it comes from a respect and a humility, a humble respect for the physicality of the body. The scared little, what's Mary Oliver's line? The soft animal of the body, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? That kids need that. Grown-ups need that. Um, I talk about the three-stage evolution of the brain, the, lizard, the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. Okay, over 600 million years. We really need to pet the lizard a lot, as well as feed the mouse and hug the monkey. But petting the lizard, soothing for safety, so critically important. That right there is meditation. The going on beingness of living, deeply important. And then uh, the other thing for me that's also very important, and meditation is often a practice of, it's the um, resting in and the, and, the, and the witnessing of and the cultivation of that which is pure and wonderful and stainless and taintless and always abiding, the core of our being, uh, including the, the retention of the capacity to love, even if one has been unloved, uh, the retention of the capacity to construct, even if one was around things that were destroyed. That's deeply precious. And for children or anyone who's been um, harmed or abused, being able to retain uh, conviction and a felt sense of that, that that was never taken from you. It's still alive in you, and I see it in you. It is still there in you, not destroyed, not tainted, not taken from you. you. Never destroyable, actually. Feeling that and recognizing that and knowing that again and again, that too is a beautiful meditation. for all of us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, I'll just say it. One of the things that's been striking me lately is how as we go deeply into the recognition of impermanence, we pop out into eternity. We come out into timelessness. We come out into this very clear sense that phenomena are continually changing, but allness abides. And the trick, of course, is to get that emotionally and in your body, not just intellectually. It might start intellectually, but it comes into the body. Okay, thanks. Maybe one more person? Comments, questions, disputes? 
nightmare scenarios, visits with the in-laws. No? Okay, we'll just keep going. We're going to move into concentration. All right, one more, one more. Going once, going twice. Keep that hand up, he'll find you. There you are. Thank you. Hi there. Um, I just had a question about, um, earlier you had talked about um, reducing the thinning of the um, cortical thinning. I just wonder if there's been any work on um, people who have early stage dementia. Can they um, start to meditate? Does that have any effect on their disease process? Anything going on there? Mm. Really interesting. An interesting question. Um, the, the, the data on that is not yet completely known. Uh, there are a couple of things that point to some, some interesting ideas. The, about eight or nine years ago, there was a study in North Carolina that looked at dementing individuals um, who did or did not have a whoop, did, I hit this? did or did not have a spiritual practice or did it at a spiritual community, which goes back to the the sangha question that was asked a little earlier. Yeah. And it turns out that if you uh, if you had a spiritual practice your rate of decline was not eliminated. It's not that you cured anything, but the rate of decline of your cognitive function slowed by something around 15 to 18%. That's as good as I can do with Aricept, Exelon, and Nemenda, the three of the major drugs we use for dementia, uh, which suggests that a you know, a deep connection of spiritual practice. Now, most of these, you're North Carolina, most of these were Southern Baptist, but there was at least one Buddhist in the study, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> they were in the health food store. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> they were the Buddhist, right? That's right. So, um, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's an idea that's out there. I don't think it is not going to reverse a biologic process uh, and I think one of our tasks as human beings is to you know as I said with earlier this morning about equanimity and being with what is um, you know if you are in the middle of a heart attack meditating is not going to open up your left anterior descending coronary uh, if you are 20 years earlier before, before the heart attack and you meditate, the likelihood of progression to atherosclerosis might slow to the point that that left anterior descending might not happen. So as we know other treatments with, with, uh, with dementia, probably starting early helps. All right, we're going to keep going. One thing I would just say briefly about dementia is the um, reduction of corrosive processes in the Mm -hmm. brain, including, besides physical toxins, including stress hormones, and also improving, um, you know, it's positive emotion. And even if there's a dementing in the cortical region, so higher function is being lost, there can be growth and development even in the emotional, somatic, motivational centers of the brain, still. And there can be um, a peaceful abiding without much memory. 
you know, memory. Without much memory. Yeah, let's say. Okay. Um, So Rick's going to take over. Want to make sure we're in the next slide. Right now, we're Looks still, funny we're for still us to there. just turn around. Why don't we just do the workshop like this? You know, here we go. Here we go. All right, we're, he's going to talk about concentration, and we're going to move that arrow. And here we are. Three pillars, three pillars of practice. Of practice. Okay. So we'll, we will be focusing a lot in the next couple hours on concentration um, as the, as the path in. Um, so it'll be. Um, and this is sort of some of the establishing of practice. If you think about the, the, the basic structure, the practice of concentration is initially dependent on having as relatively an undistracted brain as you start, when you start the practice, as possible. And virtue, concentration, and wisdom are three pillars. Now, why start with virtue or sila? Um, it's a little hard to concentrate if you've been murdering, raping, and pillaging all day. Uh, and so not having anxiety, toxic experiences hung over from yesterday's fight with your spouse or your boss or, your un- or this person who works for you, not having that echo per- uh, you know, permeating your experience on the cushion is, prob- is probably a good idea. So there's a piece of that that, that needs to happen. Concentration or samadhi is, as it's defined in, in the suttas, mindfulness, steadiness of mind, and meditative absorption. And that's what we'll be focusing our, uh, some of our work on in the rest of the afternoon. And that, starting from a, sta- a stable undisturbed state of a relatively decent you know, moral focus at that, at that point, followed by concentration practice, leads you to wisdom or panya, insight, understanding of not just the Four Noble Truths, but the human condition as you find it now. Um, and that whole, that whole idea of practice is that you uncover the, your true nature that's already present. You begin to finally be, be, make friends and be with that which is about you. That which is about your genetic constitution. That which is about what your personal history is. That's you know what that's which is about the physical condition about the rest of your body, um, uh, and be able to work with that just as it is right here, right now. And that that working with is the is the process that actually transformed uh, the heart mind. Um, you know, as, the, as the Tibetans would talk about, they don't talk about mind and and heart. They talk about heart mind. You know, the jewel the the jewel of the of clarative insight is contained within the lotus of the heart. The path itself, for many of us, and I think for everybody who actually pursues it, the path is its own reward. Again, this goes to we uh, <clears throat> we take on the state of practice. Ultimately, it becomes the trait of practice. And ultimately synapse by synapse by synapse by synapse, it becomes the biological condition of that central nervous system moving forward. And you can see even with the question about the dementia, um, 
If you wish to maintain connection with the Sangha, it's an awful lot easier to do if you're dementing as a peaceful, abiding, relatively content and happy individual as opposed to an aggressive somebody who's protesting and is fear-based and is completely driven by the fact that they can't figure out whether they lost their wallet because they left it somewhere or you stole it. And you can kind of see how that works. So the path is its own reward. And ultimately... Well, you know, ultimately for, for the fortune of people who take it, culminates in enlightenment and freedom from suffering. I really want to encourage people to take up the path early, to take it up intensely. Um, one of the things I know is that it's an, it requires a really balanced, intact central nervous system to do this piece. And as we get older, and I can certainly feel it in myself, the integrity of the brain begins to get less. Do it early, do it often. So what's the importance of concentration within the triad of, of uh, uh, virtue and uh, concentration and, uh, and wisdom? We're going to look at meditative depth. We, when we initially started doing these uh, talks way back about 10 years ago, meditative depth was not as, as much of a focus in Western Buddhism as it perhaps is today. There are now a number of people who, do, who teach meditative depth, which is um, <clears throat> referred to as the jhanas, which is, which is talked about a lot in the suttas. Um, Strong concentration, recommended by the Buddha and traditional teachers, and it just—it's again—it's uh, this heft of insight. It strengthens the will. It purifies the mind. It's working that muscle to the to the point where it can be used easily, and where the, the your, your skill set is developed. <clears throat> One of the other uh, the eightfold path to uh, to eliminate dukkha and to eliminate suffering in your life includes wise concentration. Um, the four jhanas and profound states of meditative absorption as part of that. A um, little important piece in there, wise concentration. One of the things you'll find in, in throughout the, 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 the Buddhist um, <laughs> philosophy, in my view, is this the sense of, of wise, skillful use. It's not absolutely, perfectly, total... I'll, Concentration. It's not, I'll concentrate tomorrow. It's wise concentration. It's the appropriate application of concentration to the moment when you need it. So, you know, and so I think the fact that wisdom is infused into each part of the Eightfold Path is an important statement in the idea of balance and middle path. And it sort of resonates throughout, uh, I think, the, the, uh, the whole Buddhist philosophy. <clears throat> We're not going to try to teach the jhanas. The, there are some people with Spirit Rock who do a really superb job of doing this. Um, and also, it would be the height of hubris to try to say we could get you to the, <laughs> into a jhana state by three in the afternoon. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we're pointing to how those things are obtained in order that you can see that these brain states... Uh, can support these uh, these mental factors. So, 
So the lovely quote from uh, Akarya Dhammapala, concentration is the proximate cause of wisdom. Basically, there puts a time course. You, if you are able to, to attain concentration, wisdom will arise. Wisdom will arise. Things will come to you in the state of concentration that will otherwise probably not show up. And without concentration, without paying attention, one cannot even secure one's own welfare, much less the lofty goal of providing for the welfare of others. The providing for the welfare of others, obviously, that's the bodhisattva path. The arahant path is concentration for the attainment of one's own, of one's own enlightenment. For the benefit of all beings is the bodhisattva. It's the moving on. And from the, the suttas, And what, friends, is right concentration? Here, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a person enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. With the stilling stilling of applied and sustained thought, the person enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. With the fading away as well of rapture, the person abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce, he or she has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he or she enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. This is called right concentration. This is an element of the Eightfold Path. Right. Now that's a skill set that'll take you a while. Um... But they are, in many ways, attainable. So the jhana factors. Applied attention. Bringing attention to bear. Uh, sometimes a metaphor we've used is the ice skater. Um, the, the ice skater applies and places the weight on the blade. And begins to move. Sustained attention. Staying with the target glides along the blade as far as that particular motion will carry. Rapture. Great interest in the target. Bliss in rising and being in, involved in the, in the focus of attention. Joy. Happiness, contentment, and tranquility. It's a little bit different than rapture. Rapture has a luscious sort of enmeshed quality. Joy has a happiness, contentment, a tranquility, a brightening. Um, in many ways, there are, there are some neurotransmitter pieces under this. The rapture, the sort of, you know, entranced, bliss, grabbed, bliss, yeah. bliss quality. That, that in rapture partakes of dopamine. That in rapture partakes of the dopamine uh, flooding the frontal lobes and the reward center. Joy, the happiness, contentment, and tranquility tends to be more of a norepinephrine effect. And in the, in the antidepressants, 
when you're using these things medically. If, you've, if, you, if you do uh, medications which really promote more of a dopamine sense, there is, there's a, an, a, uh, an activation, there's an enrapturement, there's an easy fatigability, and a sense of needing more, and needing more, needing more. Craving arises. So there's a little flavor even in, in these jhana states when you're trying to move away from craving. Some of these things can entrap you and it's important to realize that they have to be let go of. The norepinephrine side of things is the joy thing, the happiness, contentment. People describe the experience of being on Vipropion uh, as a brightening. The newest, uh, the newest antidepressants, the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor drugs, have the norepinephrine in there, not because the serotonin breeds a certain tranquility and peacefulness in there, but the norepinephrine piece from the, from the SNRIs brings a sort of brightness quality, a sort of a, wow, that's really neat sunlight. Without the attachment and the, and the, and the entrancement and the clean quality. And then finally, that sent the, the factor of singleness is kind of the unification of awareness. There is a sense when one is brought to singleness that all of one's perceptions available to the brain at that moment are part of one percept. So, in a sense, you could think of it that the feelings, the feelings from your toes, the sounds in your ears, the smells in your nostrils, the uh, the, the light coming through your eyes, the experiences that are arising from memory, uh, the experiences arising from deep states within the body, that, you know, such as the chakras, um, all those are part of this moment. Oomp. It's a single, as kind of a single percept. It's a unification and an, essentially a complete focus and, co- and concentration. So why, why do that right concentration slide that I, that I read from the Buddha, which sounds incredibly complicated, why do it? Uh, insight is the ultimate aim. Freedom is the ultimate aim. And insight is just like wisdom is the, is the uh, concentration is the proximate cause of wisdom. Insight is the proximate cause of freedom. Freedom from suffering. Freedom from, uh, a delivery from being entranced and... In, in, enraptured and, and encased in this world. Insight, the ability of things to happen, is nourished by a stable, quiet, collected, concentrated state of brain. If you think of some of the creativity work, where are the, where are the classic stories from many years ago about where do people get creative th- thoughts? Uh, bed, bath, and bus. And they're lying in bed, you know, and... They've been working on a problem to try to solve it, and all of a sudden, it arises. Um, if you go to uh, the guy who came up with the benzene ring, he had been working on this for months. He was staring into a fireplace. The fireplace, the, the, the flames in the fire became snakes in his sort of visualization, and the snakes bit their own tails, and there's the benzene ring. And he realized, oh, that solves my problem in terms of coming up with the, the, the chemical analysis. Um, a number of people have talked about riding the bus you know, in Vienna, for example, from one place to another, and having the creative insight that allowed them to solve a problem. That's, 
essentially, you're in a stable, quiet, collected, concentrated state. You're just not really asking for the answer to the question. You've let go of the craving. And the answer arises. So liberating insight and nibbana is the fruit of, starting with virtue, contemplative practice and concentration and wisdom. And so you see, as the quote at the bottom, even if the ripe apple falls ultimately by grace, its ripening was caused by the watering, the feeding, the protecting, and the shaping of the tree. Paying attention, paying attention to the trunk, paying attention to the roots, paying attention to the, the close branches allows the tree to flourish and to provide you apples. Shantideva, famous Tibetan mystic. Penetrative insight joined with calm abiding utterly eradicates afflicted states. Sounds easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The calm abiding is concentration. It's kind of code words for concentration. And finally, yeah. it's really hard to, to look back at something. The spiritual life does not have gain or honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. We talked about the the jhana factors, and there are a number of suttas within the Majjhima Nikaya and the other collections of suttas that talk about the, the jhana as the way to get in. It actually was probably one of the most commonly practiced um, forms of meditation uh, at the Buddha's time and in the Buddha's Sangha. And if you look at, 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 what, at what's going on, and it's even said in that slide, you relinquish, you relinquish, you relinquish until you get to the end, until, until the holy life has been lived, until what is needed to be accomplished has been accomplished. Everything before that is to be let go of. That there is, that there, you know, attaining joy, if you stop there, you, you continue to be uh, uh, in samsara. You continue to be bound up in the world because joy will come to an end. Your, the dopamine receptors in your frontal lobe will become saturated to the point that they will essentially... Uh, uh, no longer be useful to you. If you don't believe that, take a look at people who've saturated their dopamine receptors with methamphetamine and they've completely blown the dopamine receptors out and they no longer get pleasure from anything in life. Pleasure does not arise in a methamphetamine blown out brain. So in the same way, on the spiritual path, it is really beholden to us as practitioners to not stop to the end. 
that let go, let go, let go. So that entire path through the, through the jhanas to, the, to, to full liberation is actually the dictum and you, ha- and you can't stop at any spot. That's the bad and the good news because it looks like there are so many wonderful things that arise along the path that um, the path, as it said, is its own reward. Thank you. How about we stand up for a minute or two? Yeah. If you're up for it, maybe say hello to some people nearby. A little extroverted practice. A lot easier for us to say hi to you all. good. You're able to do this material really well. And I know it's, it's like, and you're stepping into it, so mm-hmm. it's really good. All right. Come on back. Enough community. So, moving back to the slides. Slides, come back, have a seat. All right, so here we go. Great. Well, I've been empowered with a clapper. I'll really hit the bell. (laughs) With that frame, if you will, or foundation on why develop concentration and why seek to be increasingly absorbed in... Um, powerful experiences. Uh, On the basis of that understanding, we're going to focus mainly on practice of various kinds, experiential practice, through the remainder of the day. And um, as an entry into it, I want to explore with you one of the neatest uh, intersections between neuroscience and contemplative practice, this idea that there are, among other major networks in the brain, two major networks that are located in the midline of the brain and also on the sides of the brain. And the point of this is that when we are uh, engaged in self-referential thinking, in which we are, have a strong sense of the I as uh, a witness or chooser, or we have a sense of the me as a kind of character in uh, our reveries or planning, we tend to activate... Uh, networks on the midline of the brain. The front regions tend to be more task-oriented and goal-directed. The rear portions of that midline network, particularly spreading out a little bit toward the back, are the so-called default mode network, where we tend to go when we're just kind of daydreaming or having a reverie, or caught up in anxious or self-critical rumination, right, or resentful rumination. Uh, It's sort of the simulator. We're in the simulator when we're in the midline either in the front, focused on tasks and planning and forecasting and you know, sorting out different possibilities, or in the back where we're more just kind of lost in thought. There's a place for the simulator. Uh, arguably, the two major developments of the brain uh, in the last several million years, as a brain has tripled in volume from our ancestors two and a half million years ago who were using tools to make tools, early hominid toolmakers, 
Um, the brain has tripled in volume, and uh, a large uh, factor that's driven that has been the benefits, the benefits of love, of relatedness, of language, of empathy, of bonding, altruism, cooperation, gossip, and politics, very major <laughs> drivers of the evolution of the brain, that's social brain theory. The other major build-out, which we have, unlike our nearest relative, the chimpanzees and bonobos, is this midline simulator capacity that allows us to imagine different futures and reflect upon our past. So it's a fantastic evolutionary achievement. On the other hand, a lot of trouble comes when we're lost in the simulator. And on average, studies have shown that people are, have a, their mind is wandering uh, about half the time on average. Some people more or less. And mind-wandering, while sometimes pleasant, uh, is often unpleasant. And the degree to which people are having their minds wander is associated with negative rumination, looping, 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 and uh, other negative consequences for physical and mental health. So being able to go into the simulator at will and step out of it at will is really useful. Interestingly, so you can see in this slide the... um, Self-referential area, medial, means in the middle, all right? And these X's are millimeters off the midline. So you can see that these regions of activation are very close to the midline of the brain. Now, in research, what they've done, these clickers are really like hair triggers. I got a, it's like a Ferrari, you know, I <laughs> touch the gas and <laughs> 60 miles an hour. Now, they've done things with people where they give them two tasks, right? One task is to think about yourself in a, a very self-referential way. And in that task, people tend to activate these blue networks very close to the midline. Then they're given a task inside an MRI um, to just be with your experience. It's an open awareness task. It's a mindfulness task. Just be with experience as it arises, not trying to interfere with it, not resisting anything, and also not chasing anything, just being with what's coming and going. Then, interestingly, they activate networks on the sides of their brain, right? These networks that are often the midline, particularly right-sided for right-handed people, It's probably reversed for roughly half of all left-handed people. But the right hemisphere of the brain for right-handed people is associated with holistic gestalt processing rather than left hemisphere more oriented around or specialized for sequential, goal-directed, verbally saturated processing, which is a lot of what characterizes midline activity when we're kind of lost in thought, ruminating about ourselves, commenting on our comments about our comments, right? <laughs> the voice that talks about the voice that talks about the voice in the head, right? That one. Anyway, so then the question becomes, can we train? Can, whoops, can we train? Good. Can we train yes. lateral mode? And that's what we're about to do. Because... For most people, since neurons have fired together, wired together, standard schooling beginning in kindergarten, most lines of work, the culture itself with its heavy emphasis on media, is an intense activation and stimulation, <coughs> uh, getting those neurons to fire together, these midline networks, which then makes them what? Wire together as well. If you stimulate it, you strengthen it, for better or worse. There's a traditional saying, the mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon, for better or worse. 
the modern update would be the brain takes its shape, literally, structurally. Um, the brain takes its shape from what the mind repeatedly rests upon, for better or worse, in, also in the context of the negativity bias, which means that the brain is particularly vulnerable to or prone to taking a quote-unquote negative shape if we repeatedly rest our attention on worries, resentment, self-criticism, uh, you know, hopelessness, and so forth. Right? So being able to stabilize as people are able to do in these trainings, mindfulness training essentially, stabilized lateral mode activation is a wonderful compensation for the standard training that most people get that specializes the uh, midline networks. I suspect people living in a hunter-gatherer culture or people whose lifestyle is more of that sort, more grounded in nature, more opened out into everything, they're less likely to get this I think of it as a kind of hegemony or dictatorship of the midline, you know, ruling elites, as it were. So learning to be able to go both ways, including strengthen the lateral mode, is really good. So how do we do it? Happily, there's real science behind this, that there are a number of things that do tend to activate, stimulate these lateral networks, and if we sustain that experience, and if we keep taking in the good, as it were, of that experience, we therefore can strengthen those lateral networks. There are a variety of ways to do that. Um, relaxing the body really helps. Surprise really helps. Jokes tend to pop people out into these lateral networks. Then they come back and they think about it. Uh, a panoramic perspective going to the 10,000-foot view or the bird's-eye view about your issues or seeing the big picture, that also tends to take us out into this lateral mode. And one thing that we're about to go into that also definitely takes people into that lateral mode is sensing the body as a whole. Rather than having attention kind of skitter from this sensation of breathing to that sensation of breathing. But instead having a sense of the body as a whole, which is then a doorway into taking experience as a whole, which is the essence of the fifth jhana factor, singleness of mind, unification of consciousness. So it's a kind of training into, in Pali, Akagata, the fifth jhana factor, to practice this kind of gestalt awareness or whole body awareness. So momentarily I thought we could go into it. There are a few other things that also support the lateral mode. And if you're interested in this, I, I actually have a longer workshop on the lateral networks and the midline networks. Uh, call it being and doing. Because if you think about it, being mode is very associated with lateral network activation. We're in the present moment. We're not abstracting or conceptualizing very much. There's little sense of I. We're not that task-focused. That's all lateral mode. That's kind of like being. Midline is more doing, goal-directed, focused on the future or, you know, harvesting the past, a strong sense of self as a subject or as an object. Uh, that's midline activation. We need to, that's doing, right? And if you want more information about this and different kinds of practices, if you go to my website, rickhanson.son.net, and you go to a slide sets on being and doing, I have more stuff about this. Okay. For now, how about we slide into a practice and then we'll slide into a break. All right? Is that good? At some point, will you put your website up? So 
Yeah, it's on the very first slide, but you need to go to my website to see the slide, so that's a problem. <laughs> no, we'll fix that. So we'll do that. We'll do that. And it's my name, S-O-N, rickhanson.net. But yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll figure this out. Okay, you want to try a practice? Yes. First, a comment or question? Question. Yeah. Do you want a microphone? Great. Uh, what's the difference between the midline activity and the PFC, prefrontal cortex activity? Because, like, so let's say I'm doing a task yeah. on a computer, on you know, working on a particular mm. piece of software. Say, um, how does the PFC? Is it the PFC at work or the midline or both? Okay, great. So I'll I'll try to respond in a summary way about that. Um, the PFC is this prefrontal cortex, which is a lot of area. So if you were to think of the brain as like the planet Earth, this would be sort of North America, or maybe just the U.S., but it's still a pretty large area. And there can be parts of the prefrontal cortex that are more off to the sides, as well as more of a midline. Now, neuroscience is a baby science, so we're just learning a lot of stuff. So to make it practical, to bring it down to Earth... um, very often when we are engaging the prefrontal cortex, it's in the context of doing some task or other. Like you said, you're at work, you're programming or you're doing something. And so we're also getting a lot of midline activation. That's sort of the executive centers of the brain. Uh, there's a place for that. It's important. But if you think about how we live today compared to how our ancestors lived a hundred years ago, let alone a hundred thousand years ago, when people just like us, more or less, were uh, not walking here, not yet in North America, but we're definitely on planet Earth. Um, This intensive, sustained activation of the prefrontal cortex in the midline is abnormal. It's unnatural. And it's useful in some ways, but to me it's also really helpful to be able to compensate for it. And as it were, playing a piano to be able to access all 88 keys. Maybe there's some main ones. We have strong suits. I'm pretty good at prefrontal activation. You know, I got rewarded for that a lot growing up. But, um, you know, you've got to be able to play all the keys, all the keys, and not get trapped with your talents or by your talents or in your talents. So um, it's also true that to sustain that lateral mode, and you'll experience this momentarily, it really helps to periodically go back to the chair of the committee to just keep re-instructing yourself in the prefrontal cortex, the chair of the committee, as it were, to keep re-instructing yourself, as I'll tell you in a moment, keep staying with the body as a whole, opening out to the body a little bit. It's like the least amount necessary of that top-down guidance is what we're feeling our way into as the sweet spot. Okay? All right, let's try it. It all gets more real when we try it. So my personal experience of starting to do this was that it was frustrating. I couldn't sustain the experience of the body as a whole for more than a second or two or three. But then with practice, though, it it got easier and easier. And some of you may be naturals, just already truly able to do this or having trained yourself in doing it. Um, I'll offer some suggestions. I, I try to say as little as possible in a guided meditation, but it is a guided meditation. And toward the end, we will go out to mind as a whole, not just body sensations, but mind as a whole. By that, I don't mean anything woo-woo or cosmic, just the stream of consciousness as it is. There is mind. There is mind-ing. There is a mind process. It's self-evidently there, including its aspects of awareness. 
and taking it as a whole uh, is where we'll finish up. And I'll just point out in advance for your own vipassana, your own insight, that the structural nature of all suffering is parts struggling with parts. Mm. That's the structural nature of suffering. You know, uh, view of cookie, image of cookie, part. Desire for cookie, part. Superego says, bad desire, no cookies for you, Ricky. Third part. Then in comes Sharon Salzberg, Tara Brock, fourth voice. Oh, Ricky, you need to love yourself. It's okay to have a cookie. <laughs> right? Isn't that right? That's the nature of suffering. Whereas if you go out into the hole, there's no struggle, there's no tension, there's no conflict. Not so, Ananda. <laughs> there's no conflict. There's no, you know? So I just you see, you know, you might play around with it, and it's self-evident. There is mind as a whole. See, it's like to just abide as mind as a whole. No problem. There may be stuff. There may be pain in the mind as a whole. There may be anxiety in mind as a whole. But it need not be a problem. There need not be suffering that there is one content or another in mind as a whole. And see for yourself. Investigate for yourself. Okay. All right. So let's begin. We'll start with an awareness of the sensations of breathing in a fairly small area. And um, by the way, if you don't want to use breathing, you can just you know, tune into your body in other ways, but I'll speak about breathing. So, starting to track the fact that as you breathe, and not trying to control the breath particularly, just letting it find its own natural rhythm, sometimes fuller, sometimes more shallow, probably, you know, calming over time. Be aware of the sensations of breathing as a whole, in an area, let's say, of the center of your chest, maybe a few inches, maybe a couple dozen centimeters across. There's an awareness that in that region are multiple sensations, but as you breathe, you can get a sense of all those sensations kind of known at once. We're forming a single gestalt in this region in your chest. You can go at your own pace, as you like, expanding the field of sensation, ultimately to include your whole body. I'll I'll do it in a step-by-step way here. So if you like, getting more of a sense of sensations of breathing in the chest altogether, the rib cage, including the diaphragm, that size of space or volume, all the sensations forming a whole continuously.
can help to imagine that attention, maybe like a spotlight, is widening out, fanning out. It might also help to have a sense of receiving sensations. And expanding to include your abdomen, your belly, sensations on your side and your back related to breathing, and perhaps internal sensations such as the heart uh, beating in your chest. So you're with the torso as a whole, from shoulders to hips. The experience of the Gestalt crumbles, no problem at all. Just see if you can reestablish it, maybe starting with a smaller area and then widening out again. And also beginning to include the top of the torso, the neck, the ways in which there's a subtle movement in the neck as the chest rises and falls. Movement in the, the head. Sensations of breathing in the face. All the sensations of breathing as an integrated whole from the top of the head all the way down to the hips. including also sensation in the shoulders, upper arms, elbow, forearms, and hands.
awareness staying wide and inclusive. And more and more including sensations in the hips as the belly rises and falls with each breath. Sensation also rippling down from the hips into the legs, the thighs and knees, even all the way down to the feet. Eventually including the whole body as a single unified experience with many little parts to it. Continuously experienced as a whole. Abiding as a whole body breathing. And then if you like, expanding to include more than sensations. Try including sounds, hearing as well as sensing. Retaining awareness of the whole body as you breathe, while also including sounds in the gestalt of experience. You can take it a step further, including emotion, particularly peacefulness or happiness or warm-heartedness. Also included in this 
gestalt of ongoing being. And then if you like, go all the way, including all of mind as a whole. All of experience, whatever is there, thoughts, tastes, memories, and also sensations, staying in the present moment, sensations of breathing, emotion, recognizing that awareness itself is part of the mind process. Simply abiding as consciousness, the mind process unfolding without controlling, without holding on, without any chasing, Funk, really here as a whole. problem to solve. No one to be. Peacefully abiding.
as we start to finish up this meditation, you might see what it's like to, if you want, open your eyes and include seeing in all of experiencing. You can include knowing that we'll be moving into a break and even planning, perfectly fine. One more aspect of the mind process. Feel free to continue sitting if you like, or walk quietly, or chat with a friend. And please be back uh, 16 minutes at 10 minutes past the hour, okay? See you then. We'll